0: Hey everybody welcome back to another month another webinar. We are so excited for this evening because for the first time we are launching our new book Wealth Plan which we're going to tell you all about that and on top of that we are also going to be covering the eight steps to invest in property to create a passive income. It's going to be a great lot of fun. Now if you haven't met me before my name is Ed McKnight, I'm an economist here at Opus, and to your right, you can see Andrew Nichol, who is the managing director here at Opus, and my co-author for this. Look, we're going to rip straight into it because there is a lot on tonight. But what I want to know is, can you hear us? So. If you can hear us, let me know what colour Andrew's shirt is. What it's always shirt...
1: the same, every month. What? It's not no the same black, shirt. Isn't it? not no, it's not. I've got video evidence that it's not the same. Not. Shirt, but I can it's...
0: see that people are listening at home. They can see that it is black, which is great. It's good to see you again. Now, Andrew, intro it for us tonight while okay. everybody's coming in.
1: So, tonight, people, we're going to talk about the eight steps to, bu- to build a passive income and retire on real estate, which is the catchphrase of our book, Wealth Plan. Is this the first time everyone's seen the cover of it? No, we showed it
0: last time.
1: Ah, okay. All right. So we're going to be launching this tonight. We're very excited. This has been three years in the making. A lot of painstaking hours of Ed and I squabbling over wine about what to put in, what to leave out, and, uh, and what to use for the cover. And tonight we're going to be talking about the book tour, which is going to be very exciting. We're going to travel to Queenstown Christchurch, Wellington, Havelock, North and Auckland. So all the places that we wanted to go and where we've got offices as well. So you've got to stay till all the end because we're going to give you the link and we're going to talk about the pre-release, how you can get your hands on a copy of Wealth Plan before it hits the shelves. Now tonight, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the webinar, the recording tomorrow, the data, Q&A for free, spreadsheets for free. You don't get the slides, but you'll get a recording tomorrow. Now just some housekeeping. When you're setting up your chat, make sure you put all your messages to panellists and attendees so everyone can join in and see your comments. And if you've got questions, put them under the questions tab because Ed and I will do our best to answer as many as we possibly can at the end. Now, why should you listen to us? Well, we're the hosts of the number one business podcast in New Zealand for basically three years running now. 4.6 million downloads. We're about to hit 5 million this year, hopefully. We're the owners of informed Investor Magazine, and New Zealand Property Investor. I know a lot of you know that already, but just for any newbies here, um, Ed here, as I said before, is the economist here at Opus Partners, the host of the Property Academy podcast, is a property investor himself, and I'm the managing director of uh, Opus Partners, co-host of the Property Academy podcast, and an avid property investor since the tender age of 19.
0: Now, there are three main things we're going to go over tonight. We're going to take you through the three stages of property investment, and then we're going to take you through the eight steps to build a passive income. And then right at the end, we are going to release the book, for pre-sale, for the very first time. We wanted to hold that back before it hits the shelves just for you hardcore fans who have been around since the very start and are here with us tonight and come back every month. The central premise of that book, the central idea is how do I use property throughout my life to eventually create a passive income? And from working with thousands of investors over the years, we've found that really there are three main stages in life in investing in property. You've got Investors who are right at the start, they're at the starting blocks. We then move on to investors who are running the race. And most of you here tonight, you're going to be in this second section here, and we'll tell you what that means very shortly. Then the final part is crossing the finish line, where you eventually create that passive income for life, a permanent passive income. Now let's talk about the goals for each of these three stages because I'm gonna ask you very shortly to identify which stage you're in. So if you're at the starting blocks, what's your goal? It's to buy your very first time, you start a property and start to build some equity in it. Now most of you will have already completed that phase of investing in property. The second phase is to build a portfolio and start to grow your wealth. And most of you will be in this section. Some of you already investing in property. Some of you about to take that leap and start doing that before you get to crossing the finish line where you actually get to earn that passive income. And the reason that we sequence these three stages in this order is because usually what's going to happen Once you've got your first home and you've built some equity in that, you are going to launch off that foundation and start using the wealth within your own home to build that portfolio and grow your wealth. And then after that, you're going to use that wealth that you've created in the running the race section to start earning that passive income. But you can't can't just jump to crossing the finish line. You've actually got to have some wealth behind you before you can start earning that passive income. Now, of course, tonight, we told you that there are eight steps in total to earn that passive income, and they are broken down like this. Starting blocks are steps one and two, running the race three to five, and then crossing the finish line six to eight, and that is what we're going to take you through tonight. Now, I told you before that I was going to ask you to identify which stage you are currently in, but you're probably thinking, well, you haven't told me much about that. How do I figure out? which stage I'm in. So what I want to do is, you know what? Let's take a look at the book. Let's open it up because within that book, which I am going to pull up Pre-hab. now. Preview. We've
1: got an actual preview of the book.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've pulled it up. Here's something I've prepared earlier. <laughs> uh, we're going to pull it up here. And I'll just zoom out so you can see it. It's all beautiful and orange. And I know it's a bit fuzzy on Zoom, but here we go. This is one of my favourite tables within the book because you can see... Starting blocks, running the race in the middle, and then crossing the finish line on the right. And it talks about, well, how many properties do you own? Look, if you don't own a property yet, or you own your own home, or first rental, if you don't live in your own home, but you don't have enough usable equity to buy a second property yet, hey, you're in the starting blocks. Typically, you'll have quite high debt levels. And what's your goal at that stage? Buy your first property, build some equity. And here are some just ballpark age ranges. Hey, look, if you're running the race, you own two properties or more, or you own your own home and you're ready to buy your first investment. Here, you can have high debt, moving to a medium over time. Or, I tell you what, you're crossing the finish line if you own, say, three or more investment properties, have owned them for more than 10 years. Hey, you may be here in the crossing the finish line stage, and that's where you buy some high-yield properties and eventually live off the rental income. Just one of my favourite tables from the book. Now, just so that we are able to tune this webinar to where you're at, what I want to do now is I'm going to put a poll across your screens to ask you which stage you are currently in.
1: The guy that sold you your mouse for the uh, Wellington Property Investors Association is on the webinar right now.
0: Oh, how good. Hey, it's nice to see you again. I actually did check out your YouTube video, by the way, because you're a, a pop star uh, over in your home country, which is pretty really? cool. Yep, but we'll get into that at the end because we've okay. got to do this. So I'm going to put this poll across your screen now because we want to get a sense of where everybody is within each of these stages of life. So. Tell me, are you at the starting blocks, are you running the race, are you crossing the finish line, or are you not sure? You'll need to read the book to figure it out because you're not quite sure yet. And once we get, I don't know, 400 odd responses, then we'll close that poll off and share that across everybody's screen as well. Um, I can see just from those preliminary results that there are a lot of you running the race, yeah. company couple of you crossing the finish line, some of you just at the starting blocks, which is awesome too. We've got some stuff for you guys tonight. And in three, two, one, I'm gonna end that poll and share those results with everybody. So we can see that about a quarter of you guys at home you're at the starting blocks. That's cool. You're either trying to buy your first property or build enough equity so you can purchase your first investment. About 70% of you, you're running the race. You're either investing in property or you're almost ready to start. That's cool. A couple of you, good on you. 6% of you crossing the finish line. Yikes. And some of you are saying, you know what, I need to read the book first because I don't quite know yet. That's fine too. That's what we're going to go through tonight. Now, Andrew, you are going to take us through the eight steps to build a passive income.
1: Okay, right. Now, listen, there is so much in this. So we are going to cover this from a high level tonight because we've got limited time and limited attention span, I'm sure. One of the uh, things that Sim from Girls That Invest uh, said about the book is that it's exceptionally detailed and the only property book you'll ever need. So let's talk about step one. That's when you buy your starter property and it's often your first home. Look, for me, it wasn't. It was the first rental property and then i just carry on renting. But for a lot of people, this is going to be buying your first home as you're start starting property. Step two is when you start to build equity in your starter property. And how do you do that? Well, there are two ways. You either pay down your mortgage as aggressively as you possibly can or you renovate to add value. You can do a combination of the two of them as well. Now, for those podcast fans that have been listening for years, you'll know that we use terms for this. So, if you're paying down your, aggre- your mortgage very aggressively, we call that the mortgage buster strategy. And if you're renovating to add value to your property, we call that cash flow hacking. And again, you can use the both of them together.
0: Now we've specifically moved quite quickly through steps one and two just because there's a lot to cover in some of those other steps though we can come back to that in questions now we could have spent a bit of time in step number three andrew which is when we start Running the race. So at this point, we've bought our first home. We've built some equity in it, either by renovating or by paying down that mortgage. What happens in step three as we transition into running the race? Now
1: this is when you start to buy your assets. So you're buying either your first investment property or your second investment property if you're a rent investor like it. So this is when you're actually starting to think about. Well, I can't eat my own house. I have to. I have to have some other investments now. There are four things within there are four categories, subcategories within this. The first is you need to choose your property, uh, your property type. So we often say that property falls under a spectrum of growth, high capital growth, or high yield. So high capital growth is something like oh, a house in Ponson Bay. You know, really high growth, but very low rental income. So that means that the rent's not going to cover a lot of the cost of that house. A really high yield property on the other end of that spectrum as a property that's not going to give you a whole lot of capital growth because it's a more uh, uh, a more limited property. I'll talk about those types of properties later on. But it's going to give a really high rental income. That's about income rather than capital growth. And then there's the ones in the middle. They're the lemons. They're low growth, low yield. Now, we also talk about now, are going to go jump in here? You want to bring up the book again? We are going to now. So here's the
0: thing. If you are running the race, most of you are going to be investing in more growth properties first because what's the goal? Your goal is to build your wealth, and that's what a growth property is typically going to do. So if you know that you're probably going for a growth, though there are times... Maybe we'll answer this in questions where you might still go for a yield property or a few yield properties. But if you are going for growth, that's where you want to look for the eight principles of capital growth. And look, on our YouTube channel and on our podcast, we've done a lot of debunking. We've figured out a lot of the things that don't actually influence capital growth that much. Things like school zones. You know what? Don't matter. Land size. Surprisingly, doesn't really matter. But there are eight principles of capital growth that do matter. And that's what I'm going to take you through now. And I just need to go off to page 100 of the book to pull it up. Because there are these eight principles that we have
1: uh, found typically lead to higher capital growth. Just a reminder to put any questions in the questions uh, uh, section, which is just down the bottom, the Q&A, just so that we can make sure we answer them at the end. I'm seeing some of them come through and I'm trying to jot down as many as I can, but just if we miss anything, it will be because it's not in the Q&A. Cool, so
0: the first thing is, let me zoom in on this, and we mentioned some of this very, very briefly in the uh, email we sent out last week. So firstly, regions that are nearer to the bottom of their property cycle, hey, they tend to increase faster because what do we know? We know that properties do not increase at the same rate at different times. Here's an example we give of how between 2010 and 2015, Wellington City, hey, 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 it only went up by 3.5% over that time where Christchurch went up by 30%. Well, five years after that, Wellington was up 70%, Christchurch only up 6%. So what am I trying to get across here? Hey, different cities increase at different rates. So if you're looking for some nearer term capital growth, you want to be looking for a city that's relatively undervalued. And although this data will naturally change over time, we actually give a full table within that book where we go through... What's undervalued at present time? So this is pretty much up to still up to date. You'd see here right now Manawatu Waikato 12% undervalued. Gisborne don't like the look of that. All Hawke's Bay 11%. Where's looking pretty good? Canterbury Northland Taranaki Hey. At the time of writing, those were looking pretty good. But there are seven other factors that we often look at as well, which you guys are going to be able to see. Things like cities with higher population growth. Yep, they tend to increase faster too. Take a look at this. We've got higher population increase in the bottom and then higher house price increase up the top. Yep, there are some outliers up here, but generally speaking, look how Rua Ruapehu, hey, they had much less population growth, shrinking population actually, much lower capital growth over the period, whereas Queenstown, much, much higher capital growth and much, much higher population growth. And I tell you what, we'll just flick through some of the other factors too, just for a bit of fun because it is quite interesting. What have we got here, Andrew? Oh, we've got the difference between houses and townhouses versus apartments this on this graph. This is a graph. great section. Oh, I love the What, of the book or just this part? No, the particular yeah, the book. Oh, the book. I know. It's my favourite part. I nerded out. So this lighter orange line or yellowy line you can see on the screen. Yep. That's the capital growth of apartments within Wellington City over the last, oh, I think this is over the last 32 years because it stretches back there before 2002. And houses and townhouses, yep, you can see they have done much better as well. But there are some other things. Two and four bedroom houses, they tend to do better than one bedroom properties. And uh, townhouses and, and standalone houses tend to do better than apartments. Properties, at valuation, also very important. But there are eight different factors that you can see there that we tend to go through. So after we've decided, yep, I need some growth properties, that's where you can look at those eight principles of capital growth. And you're never going to find something that's got all eight principles. But I think if you could aim for four, if you could aim for five, hey, you're doing pretty good. But after you've done that, what's right. the next step when you're buying a property, Andrew? So
1: you've chosen if your growth or yield, you've figured out your eight principles of capital growth, because that's what a lot of people wanting to do to build their wealth, then you need to find properties that fit your criteria. So you've got to actually go out there and find the right property. And you do this through a few ways. You either go on Trade Me and then probably go to a bunch of open homes. You can approach some developers and find out whether or not they've got something that's suitable or have them design something that's suitable. Or you can use a property investment company like Opus, but it doesn't have to be Opus, to find something for you. Then it comes down to the number crunching time. And this is where Ed gets his kicks. This is when you're actually going to evaluate and compare the properties, which is really important because you're probably going to find a few that are, are, are better and worse for different reasons. And again, you know, you might have three or four properties that actually meet your criteria. Some of them, you know, in a uh, you know, might be might be in a better valued area right now, but another one might have better. Capital growth options might have been six of the the capital growth factors. So you put them through your return on investment calculator, which you can download on our website if you haven't done that already. Opuspartners.co.nz/roi, and then you put in all your information and it gives you a magical return on investment number. Which this this is Ed's love, Ed and my love child. This is years of.
0: You didn't write a single formula no, for this I spreadsheet. That,
1: but I came up with the concept.
0: Oh, that is rich. That is rich. Anyway, <laughs> anyway it is, it is you come up it
1: with <laughs> the return on investment number, definitely my brainchild as well, um, and you decide which one makes <laughs> m- meets your criteria the most. Now, just one thing I will point, point out here. The highest return on investment isn't necessarily the best investment for you. So that's where you do have to dig down to a bit more information some of the time. Oh, what's this?
0: Okay, well, I told you that we'd give you a special announcement. I just want to give you some more details about the book tour because tickets are going on sale tonight. Though, I'll give you the link at the end just to make sure that you stick around and keep listening. So, as Andrew said earlier, we are coming to five centres around New Zealand to launch this book. We're going to Auckland, Havelock North, Wellington, Christchurch, Queenstown. Again, these are the cities we've got offices in, so that's why we've decided here. And here are the dates. Christchurch and Queenstown, we're coming to you in the second or third week of November, Tuesday, Wednesday. Wellington, Havelock North and Auckland we're in the 3rd slash 4th week of November which is going to be a great time
1: Now we do have limited numbers for the event, I think Christchurch and Auckland a couple of hundred, Queenstown might be a hundred Wellington 150 and Havelock uh, North maybe I think about 70
0: Yeah it's quite limited, so what we're doing is we're going to do $30 tickets and if you buy a ticket which I'll give you the link for at the end you are going to get the book as part of your ticket and of course the retail price of this book is going to be at about $39. We're going to pre pre-sale it for $30. So if you come along, you get your book, you'll also get a book signing. Andrew and I, we're going to share some of the stories which haven't made it into the book because we thought, oh, maybe that's a bit risque. So we'll give you all (laughs) of the -the behind-the-scenes stories. And on top of that, hey, you're also going to get your drinks and food covered for this. So basically, you're paying for your book and you get a free event along with it. Again, I'm going to give you the link for that at the very end because I don't want you to be distracted for the last five steps that we are going to go through. And of course... Step number four is managing your investment property. So look, it's not enough just to buy a whole whole heap of investment properties. You've got to set them up for success. So by the time we get to this midsection of running the race, what have we done? We've gone out, we've bought our first home, and we give you a lot of tips about how to do that in the book and how to build that deposit. We've built some equity in it. We've bought our first investment property. Now it's time to set that property up for success. And within the book, we talk about Setting up the financials correctly. This is really, really important because it's not enough to just have your rent come in. You've also got to make sure that you're putting aside enough to cover all of your expenses, so that you know what you're not getting caught up by the council if you haven't paid your rate, so you're not being chased up by the body corporate if you're a wee bit behind. So setting up your financials is very, very important, as well as being a good landlord. One of the main principles we share. It's not just the things about, you know, how much notice do you have to give for the tenancy tribunal, those kinds of things, but how do you be a good landlord as well? And one of the principles I'll actually tell you about now is that we often say, It's your house, you own it, but you've always got to remember that your tenant's the one paying your rent and they pay your rent to make it their home. So it's your house, but it's the tenant's home. So how do you respect that while still making sure that your house is protected? That they're not causing a whole heap of damage that is intentional or accidental and harming your asset as well. There's gotta be a really clear balanced middle ground. And then the third thing we talk about in that section of setting your property up correctly is making sure you're not paying more tax than you need to, or what we call paying minimal tax. Now, we won't bore you with too many of these details, because I want to spend a little bit more time, though, talking about expanding your portfolio. So we've bought our first rental property. We probably need a few more if we are going to build a sizable passive income. So how do we expand after we start getting tapped out from the bank. And I saw a couple of questions in the chat, people saying, I've got enough equity to invest, but it's my income side that's holding me back. Hey, this section's gonna be quite valuable for you guys. So in the running of the race section, you have gotta buy your property, manage it, expand your portfolio, and then once you're ready to buy again, that is when you loop back Buy that property, buy your next property, set it up for success, expand again, and then loop back as many times as you need to in order to close your wealth gap. And I think we've got a great podcast coming out about that uh, not so, in the not so distant future, probably next week. But as you guys have noticed or noted in the comment section, what often happens is eventually the banks might start saying no. That might, and that is usually not just because you might have been tapped out on equity, but more often than not, as you purchase more and more properties, it comes down to the income side. And so we've got a range of strategies that I want to take you through now, um, because there are two things that can hold you back. Number one, the deposit or the equity side, or the second is the income or the servicing side. And you know what? Let's pull up that book again, just so that we can go through it. Now, Andrew, just while I'm doing that, is there anything that's caught your eye while I'm scrolling down to page 178? Uh,
1: Jason asked um, whether or not there was going to be couples tickets, and I just mentioned we've made the decision to sell these um, as, as individual tickets because, you know what, if you're both coming along, both get the book and both read it because you both want to be invested in your wealth plan together and or if you've got a friend that you like and you think, I'd really like to be spending my retirement with my good friend Mickey. Give Mickey a copy of the book for Christmas. Fantastic. So what I've got here is
0: chapter seventeen is expanding your portfolio. And if I zoom in the first section of this, and Andrew, maybe you'll talk about me with these about me here, is we've got equity strategies. We've also got income strategies. So there are six main equity strategies in terms of how do you increase your equity if. That's what's holding you back from expanding your portfolio. Now, number one is capital growth. Talk to me about this, Andrew. So,
1: so look, this is the slow, boring one, and I think a lot of people, particularly um, if you're young, people think, oh, God, I'm going to have to wait for years to, to, to kind of make this work that's okay. Uh, You know, when I started investing, it was a lot easier in terms of your borrowing ability. It's not like that today, but we don't know what the LVR restrictions are going to be in the future. Right now, we know that they're in place. They could come away in a few years' time, so just sometimes it's a matter of waiting. Uh, Next one is paying down debt. So if you've got really high income, but really high debt as well, then use something like the uh, the mortgage buster, buster to pay down more of your mortgage on a regular basis have some structure on that. Uh, another one is investing in new builds. So new builds are exempt from the LVR restrictions. So you need half of the deposit to buy a, uh, a new build investment as you do with an existing property. Split banking is something that we harp on about all the time in the podcast. But for any what well, keep going. But okay. for anybody new here, this is around. This is using what using your depo- using your bank to get your deposit and doing the rest of your banking somewhere else so that it doesn't affect you uh, from an LVR perspective, once you've settled the property. Now nah,
0: I tell you what, we won't take you through the math of split banking no, because it no, can is it, get. Is oh, that what you're worried about? I was, oh, gonna I was worried you were gonna going to start go through the math of it, but everybody's no, it, no, goes, no, it goes it no, goes over no. my head, Andrew. Now the other one that is quite interesting is the bur, which is where you start renovating properties as well, where, um, in order to increase their equity. But the one I really wanted to, you to tell me about, Andrew, is this one here, oh, this the is a sell one. one to buy two. What's this? Sell one to buy two, and we'll get the camera on your face.
1: So, so this is a huge. This is a strategy that I'm using with a lot of investors right now. So, because of the LVR restrictions um, around existing properties at the moment, and because of some of the restrictions around certain types of products, so I work with um, investors that might have something like a hotel room in their in their portfolio right now, which is great yield, but terrible from a capital growth standpoint, and terrible from an LVR standpoint. So. Is that holding you back in terms of your ability to lend more money? So, in a lot of cases, people can sell a property and replace that with two properties if they free up more of more usable equity. All of that's in the book. Next thing
0: that we want to talk about, though, is some of the servicing strategies. And I realise that this is what some of you guys have been asking about. On top of that, we have five servicing strategies. The first one is to use a non-bank lender. So if you're unable to get the money from an income side, maybe if the bank's not willing to give it to you, maybe you could use a non-bank lender. And there is a really good case study within that book that talks about how these people would not have been able to invest otherwise. And in that we talk about, I think that's where the banks were willing to lend to them before triple CFA, but after the new law came in, hey, wasn't going to happen. But maybe that's not for you. That's where you might decide that, let's just flick to the next page. Hey, you might need to use what we call the commitment issues strategy. That's where if you have quite high expenses in the bank size, there are a couple of things you can do to get more uh, money hitting your account and Take account of in the bank size things like cancelling unused credit cards. Did you know? God, I love this sentence here. A ten thousand dollar unused credit card can limit your borrowing for properties up to eighty nine grand.
1: Huge, isn't it? Imagine the difference. I mean, if that puts you into a higher growth region, just having another eighty nine thousand dollars worth of purchasing power—that's massive for a ten k unused credit card.
0: The other one that's interesting is, you know, let's say you've got 15 years left on your mortgage, the bank's got to look at your mortgage payments over 15 years. What's the number that we've put on here, Andrew, if you were to extend it? Oh, look at this. If you applied to take that mortgage out from 15 to 30 years on a 400k mortgage, almost an extra 300k worth of borrowing that you could get on there.
1: And just for anyone worrying, thinking, I don't want to pay my mortgage off over 30 years, you don't have to. You just have to have the documented term over the longer period of time.
0: Exactly. Now, Jade's asked in the comments section, What about 7K worth of credit card limits? Hey, it's all proportional. So while, of course, I think we said 89K uh, for a 10K credit card, if it's 7K, yep, you'll probably still get significantly more borrowing than you otherwise would be able to. But it's not going to be 89K. It'll be, you know, perhaps 70% of that. Um, Things like reviewing your KiwiSaver. This is a really interesting one. If you're putting in more than 3%, to your KiwiSaver, there could be an argument to have a think about decreasing that. Let's say you're putting 10% away. Hey, look, if that money's not of your account, it's going to decrease your ability to borrow. So there is an argument sometimes to decrease your KiwiSaver, but you'll probably want to have a chat to your mortgage broker about that. Just make sure it's the right situation. And a really interesting one that actually somebody asked about on the podcast the other day, potentially even paying off your student loan early. That's another common strategy but there is a bit to think about because it can impact your equity.
1: Yeah, well, uh, one of the biggest things is student loans often are interest-free, and so people don't want to suddenly put that on their mortgage and pay some interest, but... Because of the way that interest, uh, interest, sorry, student loan repayments are calculated being a percentage of your income, they can seriously affect your uh, lending ability from a servicing standpoint. So, in fact, I was just uh, looking at some investors today and thinking about how the student loan was going to affect their lending ability in the future and thinking, well, you know, yes, you might pay a little bit of interest on it, but uh, if, if you move it onto your mortgage. But if that allows you to buy three properties rather than two, sounds like a good idea to that. me.
0: So that's step five, and these are just some of the things that I realise, again, we're moving quite quickly over a lot of content, whereas perhaps in the past, a lot of our webinars, we go deep on a couple of topics. But what we're trying to do tonight is to sketch out the overarching strategy of how do you move through your entire life using property to start to build that passive income. So again, first step, buy your first property, start to build some equity in it. That's step two. Step three is to buy your first investment investment then we'd start to set it up for success the right way before expanding that portfolio. And this will happen over perhaps even a decade or decades in order to start going through this and you'll continue doing it. But that's when we're going to get to step number six. Now we're gonna start to slow down here because this is where we really get into that passive income. Now step six is to sell your growth properties and Andrew's gonna take us through this.
1: I know what you're thinking, you're thinking Andrew tells us not to sell our properties. You've got to keep them for as long as possible. And in fact, it's really interesting. I was working with some investors the other day that I've worked with for quite a few years now, and I told them to sell a property. Getting it through uh, to them that it was the right thing to do was quite a challenge because everything that we have ingrained in them is to hold on to your property as long as possible. But remember, when you're building your wealth, you're focusing on growth properties. Now you're getting to a point in your life where you want to live off the income. And those growth properties aren't necessarily the right properties to do that. Now, I'll give you an example. Let's take a couple called Steve and Mary. Now, they want to make $100,000 a year passive income every year for the rest of their life. Now, if they buy high-yielding properties, which has, say, a gross yield of, let's call it 6%, a net yield of four percent. Remember, they've got no debt on it because they've cashed in their growth properties. They're going to need two point 5, five sorry two point five million dollars worth of freehold yield properties. That'll give them that hundred a grand. Now, if they've still got their growth properties, their houses and townhouses, that's going to be three point three million dollars because the net yield on growth properties will probably be a lot lower. You might be a a gross yield of maybe maybe 4.5%, take away a percent and a half. Now, all of a sudden, you've got to have $3.3 million worth of assets rather than 2.5. So what does that mean? It means you need another third or 33% more net assets to make the same amount of money per, week, per year.
0: And in this case, we're talking about having to build up an extra $830,000 worth of wealth in order to make the same amount of money?
1: And if you're focused on doing that, if you think, no, I want my growth properties, they've, they've served me well, that house in Rolleston has, has done me good, well, that's fine, but you're going to be working longer than you need to if you follow this strategy.
0: Or living on less money, because the thing is, if you had that extra 830k, you know, you would
1: end up with a significantly higher amount of income. Yeah. Uh, and, and look, remember, these assets are going to be passed on to your kids or, the, or, or, or you're going to donate them to Opus Partner, uh, the Opus Partners Charity. You, you're not going to live on that growth that happens over the next 20, 30, 40 years because it's the assets that are generating the income. So that's why the income is more important now. Not what we focus on when people are building their wealth, but it's important at this age and stage. So growth properties, houses and townhouses, They're used to build your wealth, really important in that running the race. When you get to crossing the finish line, that's when yield focus, that's when you're going to enjoy your wealth. You've gone from building your wealth to actually living on your wealth. Oh, let
0: me talk about okay. this, let me talk about this because you he's go, mine. Bo- yeah. <laughs> so, one of the things that I really appreciate, I gave the book to Tony Alexander, really well known economist, uh, in advance. And one of the things he said about it at the front of the book that you'll be able to read is he says that this is a book that focuses on lifelong property investment and the changes in strategy needed along the way to build your wealth for retirement and that passive income and that change in strategy that is the really really important part because if you are going to do this and do it in the most efficient way requiring the least amount of work that's where you are going to need to change your strategy if you're going to do it uh, arguably the most efficient way So, what have we done? We've now built up our wealth. We've started selling down our growth properties. Step number seven, and we're going to spend, again, a bit of time here because it's really important. This is where we create the passive income. This is where we buy our higher-yield properties.
1: Yeah, and this is really important because, uh, again the reason we focus on this so much in the book is because it is a different concept to what we talk about day in and day out on the Property Academy podcast. We're going from buying the stuff with as much growth as possible to wanting to live off that income where growth is less important but income is so so important and consistency around that. So this is what we're talking about when we say higher cash flow properties. We're talking about things like student accommodation we're talking about things like room by room rentals. So what that means is maybe a townhouse that has five individual rooms with kitchenettes in it and a shared lounge facility. And we're talking about things like dual key apartments. Now, again, some of the names on this on on the webinar tonight, I know that you've seen this stuff before, but I want to cover it for anyone new tonight. So this is a. Dual key townhouse. So, this is the step before a dual key uh, uh, apartment. So, what I mean by that is you're buying two townhouse, well you're buying one townhouses with two individual tenancy titles. So this is uh, an example of what we're doing at the moment. $899,000. You've got an upstairs unit and you've got a downstairs unit and collectively they rent for $1,100 a week. I think
0: we might have some floor plans just for anybody who's unfamiliar with this.
1: So downstairs you've got your bathroom, you've got a kitchen, dining and lounge area and you've got a bedroom. And upstairs. You've got all of that again. So the entrance to the top floor goes off a separate separate area. So there's separate tenancies. And upstairs, you've got your bedroom over this side. You've got your bathroom over here. And you've got your kitchen, dining, lounge. So the great thing is you can rent these out, even though it's one unit, as two separate tenancies. Now, another reason why this is so important if, if you're retired and living off the income is if you have vacancy of a townhouse you've got 100% vacancy. If you've got a vacancy in this situation, well, you've only got 50% vacancy. So it helps with consistency around income as well. So let's
0: go through the numbers about how this would actually provide that income to live off on that 4% net yield we were talking about.
1: Yep. So the gross yield in this example is 6.3% the operating costs are about 2%. Now, if you've got no mortgage, well, if you had a mortgage, most of the extra money would go to a mortgage. But in this case, you've got 4.3%, so 63 minus your operating costs. By the way, that's rates, insurance, property management, maintenance, all those kind of things. 4.3% is what you get to live on because you don't have a mortgage anymore. You sold your growth properties, paid off the mortgage, and now you've bought this with cash. And just to be clear, that 4.3%...
0: That is based on what you pay for the property. So if you buy it for 900K, your return on that is 4.3% in pre-tax cash.
1: Now, let's also talk about a hotel room, so something a bit more, um, very affordable. So these are uh, an apartment complex and hotel complex in Ellerslie uh, by Safari Group. They are $253,000. And the rent through the hotel is $288 a week. Okay, what do the costs look like on this? So this is the floor plan. It's basically a hotel room that most of you will have stayed at before. You've got your bedroom here. You've got your bathroom there. Now in this case, the gross yield is slightly lower, 5.9%. Your operating costs are the same, 2%. That leaves you with 3.9% to live on.
0: Now, one of the things I just want to point out is obviously three point nine percent is just under the four that we mentioned before. I think that you'd tend to go for a townhouse, uh, sorry, not a townhouse, a hotel room if you needed that little bit extra invested. Bear in mind these are you know two hundred and fifty k compared to nine hundred k for the previous ones. So overall, it balances out, and I'll show you the math of that in a second.
1: So here's a good example of someone that. What's that $100,000 a year income? So, 2 jewel dual-key townhouses and two hotel rooms. Now, I'm not saying you go and buy two of the same things. I'm just using this as an example. Now, that drops down to a passive income, because remember, you've got no debt on these anymore. You've cashed in your growth properties. Now, you've bought these properties with cash. Now, in this case, the total rent for those four properties is $144,000. But there's some costs. Even though you haven't got a mortgage, you've still got those rates, insurance, etc. to pay for. That's $42,000. What drops out the bottom? Hundred and two dollars $102,000. You've got $2,000 spare.
0: Well, the important thing, or the reason why I really wanted to show this, though, tonight, is that this is effectively it. This is what we're all attempting to move towards, where we own, in this case, four different properties with four different or in actually this case, you've got six different six different, oh, yeah. six different <laughs> rental income streams. That money from those tenants is coming into our bank accounts. We've worked hard over the years, we've built our wealth, we've invested in other properties, we've probably topped up some negatively geared properties over that time. Now we own these four properties in this example with six different tenancies. The rent's coming in each week, it's covering all its costs, and now we can live in this example on 102k worth of passive income for life. Permanent.
1: And the great thing about that is rental income tends to run at a rate higher than inflation. So your, your lifestyle doesn't have to go- diminish every year as time goes on. Um, plus, you still own those assets. So if you wanted, you could liquidate them at any time. But most of our investors that we work with want to wrap those up in a trust. That's for the kids, inheritance and then you're setting up not only yourself for the rest of your life. If you live to a thousand you're still going to have that income but you've also got those assets to provide a lifestyle for your children.
0: And I think the important thing to note as well is there is another strategy that we talk about in the book and on the podcast which is the nest egg strategy but it's this one the golden goose where you keep investing in properties for the rest of your life hold them and live off the rental income. That's the one that's less often talked about so I wanted to go into it in a lot more depth on tonight's webinar. Now, of course, that is just step number seven. So what is step number eight? Hey, it's to live off that passive income. You've gone through, you've bought your first house, you've built up some equity, you've bought some properties, set them up for success, held on to them for a long time, expanded your portfolio, sold the lot and invested in high yield properties. You've done a lot of work. Kick back, relax, live off that permanent passive income. But what I want to do before we launch the book, before we give away the uh, the link where you can go and buy your pre-sale or buy one of those tickets that we talked about for our book tour launch, what I wanted to do was let's just recap because we've gone through this quite quickly. Step one. We're in the starting blocks. We've got to buy your starter property. And in the book, we give you what we call the fast five, which are the five main deposit sources in order to, to build up enough deposit for your first property. The second is to build your equity in your property. And remember, there are options there. You can renovate or you can aggressively pay down that mortgage. And the sort of property you're going to buy in the starting blocks is going to depend on which one of those strategies you tend to take. Once you get past that, you're running the race. What are you trying to do? You're trying to buy your first or your next investment property, depending on how far through the race you are. You've then got to set it up for success and then expand your portfolio. And hey, don't undersell step number four. There are about five chapters in the book about how you actually set up that property for success. Tax. Property management, building your team, setting up your bank accounts, what you've got to do every single year in property, and what happens at each stage of the calendar. Hey, it's all in there. And then we get to what we are investing for, crossing that finish line, selling those properties down, buying high yield properties, and then eventually living off That passive income. And one thing I was really humbled by, Andrew, was what Steve Goody said about their book. This
1: was great. Uh, Steve was kind enough to say, this book has a wealth of advice and should be compulsory reading for all Kiwi battlers who want to get ahead. And Steve has been a property investor and mentor for a
0: Probably twice as long as you've been in it. Maybe not that like long. Forty he's
1: that, years. He's not that old. Calm down. He um, actually just turned fifty, I think. So, so probably about an extra ten years.
0: Yeah, good, good on him as well. And we very much appreciate that, Steve. I know probably a lot of your fans are on here tonight as well. So look, we've gone through the st- three stages of property investment. We've talked about that eight steps to build the passive income. And this is probably the first time we've really gone over the entire strategy. Now I want to release the pre-sale for the book. But just before we do that, oh. hey, look, a lot of people ask us at these webinars, if you're new, is how can these guys help me? What do you guys actually do? So what we effectively do are these eight steps to invest in property and build a passive income. And we do a lot of number crunching about it. As well as these eight steps, we also have our own piece of software, which is being given away. I need to say this. We are giving this away as part... What
1: do you mean giving away?
0: As part of the launch of the book, we're giving away the vast bulk of the software, not every calculation, but a lot of it, so people could run their own numbers as well. But at the moment... I haven't released it yet because the book's not out yet. That's happening about the 15th of November or late November when all of those books get sent out. And so what we do, if this is the first time you've ever heard about us, we offer everybody a portfolio planning session, which comes at no fee for the investors. This is where we go through, we create your my wealth plan, we see how many properties you need to build that passive income. We go out, we find those properties for you, and then dig into the details, make sure they're right. And look, one thing that I always like to do is be very, very transparent about how we get paid. I think it's very important. So what we do is an investor comes to us, they work with a financial advisor, a property partner is what we call them, and we have relationships with, well, here 58 developers, but actually it's now 97 different developers around the country. And if we can find you the right new build investment property for you, then, hey, instead of you paying us a fee, we earn a fee from the developer. That's how we manage to keep the lights on and uh, pay for things like book tours and wonderful <laughs> and wonderful things like that. So, hey, look, your next step if you want us to help you implement these eight steps to build a passive income and retire on real estate, your next step is to come in for that complimentary portfolio planning session. And I do just want to give you the opportunity, if you're new, if you've never seen us before, to book in for that complimentary portfolio planning session. I'm going to put a poll across your screen in the second, last one for the night, and it's going to say, keen to book in a complimentary session. Look, if you click the top one, Yes, please call me, we'll give you a call. But look, if you're an existing client, if you're already working with us, maybe it's not a good time right now. Hey, click the bottom button, we won't give you a buzz tomorrow. And just to give you that opportunity, I'll just put that poll across the screen now before we release those books. So again, if you click the top one, we'll give you a buzz tomorrow. If you click the bottom one, we won't give you a buzz tomorrow. And uh, either way, no trouble at all. So I'll just give you a couple of moments before we release that book. Any qu- other questions just standing out to you while uh, we're waiting for people to click the right button?
1: Oh, Aston e- Evans actually asked. Um, uh, I'll get the exact wording of it. Get the wording um, of the question um, up. Um, hey guys, uh, how does strategy approach uh, advice for growing portfolio differ between each property, uh, Opus Property Consultant, or does it align with the strategies uh, and processes that the company... Follows. Um, So we have a very uh, prescribed process that all of our property uh, partners go through. Um, They're all financial advisors in their own right. They have a uh, set. Um, model which we've developed over a number of years and are constantly refining it. so so although you might get different personalities so you work with me you're going to get a 25 minute meeting and a, a, a zoom recording afterwards so you can watch it in half speed you're going to get the same advice as someone like Dennis who will take much more time to go into detail around you know all of your numbers and things like that. So the personalities change but the but the advice should not.
0: That's absolutely correct. Now, here we go. Let me just copy the link because I'm going to put the book tour oh, link you're in the gonna chat do it. in a moment. Let me get rid of that. Here we go. We're in the chat. So, again, here we go. Book tour stops. Let's get this across everybody's screen, David. We're going to Auckland, Havelock North, Wellington, Christchurch, Queenstown. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to release the link so you can go and book in a ticket for these. If you can't, I am going to release the link in a moment as well where you can go and pre order that book. Again, here are the dates. Christchurch, the 15th, Queenstown, 16th, twenty second, 23rd, 24th of November. We're coming all over the show. And again, tickets, $30. Bargain. Book, Book signing, us speaking, drinks and food. And the link is now in the chat. So you oh, can go there in is. there now, click the link, and you'll be able to get that.
1: Stacey's asked, um, just what, while everyone's doing that, no one's paying attention to me now, are they? They're all buying their tickets.
0: Well, hopefully they're all buying does their tickets as well. Does it close,
1: does it well. close off, the, um, do, does it count down the number of tickets that are available?
0: I don't know. One of the teams <laughs> set it up for us. <laughs> uh, Jake and our team would have set that up. But there are only a certain number of tickets for each region. Uh, previously, um, we, we would massively oversell it because we know some people don't turn yes, up. Yes, yes. But we've chosen not to for this one. because well, you this is our, buy,
1: you're buying a book.
0: Because it's our first first paid event, and obviously you're buying a book as well. Now, for any of you guys who are not in one of those cities, here is a link where you can get the pre-sale. So live right now, if you go to wealthplanbook.com, wealthplanbook.com, we are, you can go and buy the pre-sale now for $30.00 free shipping in New Zealand, and that is going to ship mid-November at the launch of the book tour. So uh, you're not gonna get it sent out tomorrow, it's still currently being printed, but we are gonna ship it mid-November at the same time as that book tour. So let's say you guys are in today, and I've seen some of you guys there today. Hey, you're going to be able to get that too. So wealthplanbook.com, that's where you're able to get that. And we're going to be starting to release that, I think probably tomorrow, to everybody else who hasn't come to the webinar.
1: And actually that answers Eve's question. Do I have to attend to get a book? I have a birthday. You can just sign up for the book on that website. And, And probably I'd encourage you to do that, to leave a ticket free for someone that does want to attend the event. Oh yeah! Or just come along for your birthday. What else have you got to be doing that's going to be more fun than this? This is going to be a (laughs) wild night.
0: Well, I tell you what, the funniest thing here is that Simran from Girls That Infest, I said to her, come along to our book tour in Auckland and um, we'll have a great time. She says, it's my birthday that night. I said, well, don't worry about it. She said, no, I'm going to come. I'm going to come on my birthday, which is going to be uh, a lot of fun as well. Now, look, a little bit of extra content for you. If you don't already listen to the podcast, Property Academy episode one one two five went today, which went out today, and we did a really interesting new episode format. We did radio talkback, so we actually called up three listeners of the show and asked them their questions uh, as live. Now, if you want to be as part of that, listen to the show and. Uh, in the show notes we actually put the link in there and if you do that we might be calling you to answer your question on the show which is pretty cool the other thing is if you don't already subscribe to our youtube we put out two new videos every single week and we record two every single week Uh, and don't do it just for us do it for the thumbnails as well but always hilarious but of course here we go you got to buy the book as well. Wealthplanbook.com. We are so proud of this because it sketches out the strategy that we talk about on the podcast. <laughs> uh, after 1100 episodes, sometimes it can be hard to, to get away from the detail and see what are you doing this all for? Hey, it puts it in a really clear, logical manner about how do you actually invest in New Zealand property and retire on real estate. Now what we're going to do is we're going to jump into questions and answers and say, what else would you guys like to know? And look, if you need that link again for to get your podcast, uh, sorry, not your podcast, your book tour ticket, just let us know. We'll drop it again in the chat if it's gone up a little bit. And thank you so much as well to those people who are saying in the chat, I see... Uh, uh, somebody's booked in three for Havers. For a second, I thought I thought he said Hawara. I was like, we're not going to Hawara, that's where I grew up, but havelock North. I've seen uh, Sam, you've bought your ticket. Tracy, you've bought your ticket. Uh, really, really good stuff. Really appreciate that. Thank you for the support. We look forward to seeing you there. Let's jump into right. questions and answers um, now. Stacey
1: asked a question, how do you get over your fear of buying your first rental property? And this is actually top of my mind because um, I appeared on um, someone else's podcast today um, where for 90 minutes I talked about the journey of building Opus and and building wealth and and the trials and tribulations, the things that went right and wrong, and um, it's really scary. Buying your first property will be one of the hardest things you ever do. Um, the way you can do that, the way you can make it easier, is educate yourself as much as possible. Get familiar with what it is that you're actually wanting to achieve because. Buying a house for someone else to live in has no immediate benefit. So you've got to think about, okay, if I'm buying for growth, what do those parameters look like? Follow the, uh, the detailed descriptions in the book, particularly if you're doing it yourself, and then get out there and do it. Because I tell you what, the longer you, do, uh, uh, the longer you procrastinate doing it, the longer you have to work. And that doesn't sound that fun to anyone. Now, did you just answer Nikki's question?
0: Uh, what was Nikki's question? I'm going to
1: ask you Nikki's question there.
0: So, right. Nikki asked, why don't you recommend high yield properties for young people? Is high growth better?
1: Uh, uh, it's not that one's better or, or, or worse, it's just that one's better for a particular si- situation. So, often with higher gro- uh, yield properties, you need higher deposits, often but not always. That's one thing. So, you need to be doing that with cash, is probably, is probably the, the biggest thing to consider. But also, if you've got a 20, 30, 40-year time horizon, you will make more money out of a growth property. You'll make more money net of, of your uh, uh, sorry, your capital growth plus your revenue. You'll make more money out of growth properties than you will yield. Now, Ed did a, an excellent video. This was one of his best videos where he talks about the difference between growth and yield. And um, you'll be able to find that on our website. What, what's it under? YouTube. YouTube.com. YouTube. YouTube. Under the YouTube, under growth versus Yield Opus Partners. And if you haven't seen that one, it was a couple of weeks ago, everyone should go on and watch that because it really outlines it. We do in the book as well, but something a bit entertaining about Ed getting so passionate about growth properties.
0: (laughs) I do get quite into it. Now, Taylor, you've asked a really great question that I just want to read out, and I'm trying to find the right part in the book. Taylor's asked, do you have examples of your strategy working through to completion for any clients that you could share a lot of the case study Sundays and you are you did write about this Taylor a lot of the case study Sundays talk about putting the plan together because that's where a lot of people are at but are these some examples of where people have actually gone through and done this I just want to pull up this directly from the book because there are a lot of case studies in this book So this is one, and I'll just give you the details. I know you're looking at a wall of text, so I realise that. But this is one where, Andrew, you'd met Tanya uh, when setting up Opus back in 2013. Now, Tanya uh, was 57 at the time. She'd owned two properties that she'd bought when she was about, I think, 47. And she'd obviously bought these quite cheaply. But Tanya was a single mum, pretty average income earner at the time. And over the next couple of years, I think in here, you talk about, here it is right here, uh, you purchased a couple of extra properties that, oh, these are the ones that she'd bought, and Tanya had done some of the heavy lifting, and she bought an extra two properties. Now, the interesting thing here is she bought in total four investment properties, four investment properties over time. This would be a bit harder to do today on a single income, uh, given that properties are more expensive, but this is what works for Tania, and here she bought an extra two. One in Christchurch for 400k, I think four years Those later, 2017, Wellington, 525, that was an apartment. Now here, what, was, what did she end up living off? She made $2.1 million, her properties are increasing in value, and here we go. Together, all of the rental properties, after she crossed the finish line, 79 grand is her passive income. Um, And I think it's really cool that now Tanya, and of course we changed her name to protect her privacy, but uh, Tanya now can spend time looking after her grandkids, living life to the full. Of course, she still gets superannuation on top of that 79 grand. She's living a pretty cool life now because she's got two apartments, just paying her out money, paying the rent, and uh, she lives off that now, which is really cool, on top of New Zealand superannuation. So that's a really cool example of where single mum, Four properties in total over time. You know, invested over a 15-year period, slowly picked them up when she could, and you helped her out, 79 grand's her passive income now. Now, I've
1: I've seen so many questions about the audio version of the book, and and I'm guessing people want to have the Kindle versions as well. Um, Kindle version release, when are we thinking we can get that done by?
0: We're going to do the Kindle version release probably in about February next year. So what we're doing is the book is likely to hit the shelves about February next year. But what we wanted to do is rather than wait um, to to release it, for all of you guys who have been with us for years, been waiting for this, been coming to these webinars, been listening to the podcast, opening the emails, we wanted to get it out early. So I expect the Kindle will probably come out about February, same time as we release the book to the wide world on the the, uh, shelves and bookstores as well. Audio version, I'm hoping that Andrew is going to say yes and record that with me over the Christmas holidays. I knew you were
1: going to say that. I knew exactly where you were going. Any excuse to spend more time together. I just can't believe you guys are so off your head that you (laughs) want to hear 14 hours of Ed and I yelling at each other. It'll be eight
0: hours. It'll be about eight hours of us yelling at each other. but it'll
1: be about 60 hours of time together. And when else can we do it other than over the Christmas holiday? But yes, you can get that past Lauren, and we can do that together. Excuse
0: me, you're the one complaining. It's producer David over here who's going to have to edit... (laughs) (laughs) All of the audio, honestly. No, but we will get an audio version done for you guys as well because I realise that quite a few of you guys, you've come to us from the podcast, you prefer to listen to things, totally get it. We'll read it out for you guys as well. Um, mm. What else? Oh, what's Jade said, trust me, we don't want to hear a
1: monotone Amazon narrator. No, no, you're definitely not getting that. <laughs> now, come on, give us another question. All right, All right. Um If you view of the new build investment properties are best in the long term, what issue do you see with selling townhouses in the, in the long term future? So I guess that question actually goes to another one as well that I read, which is um, townhouses and kind of the suggestion that there might be an oversupply. And I understand this question because, There's lots of townhouse developments going on, right, all over the country. So what happens when Ed and I have the same question come in a bit? We go and do a bunch of research. When I say we, Ed goes and does a bunch of research. And we did an article which was released a couple of weeks ago. This is is some of Ed's finest work, which is, are there too many townhouses being built in New Zealand? Ed, do you want to
0: talk about that? Now, one of the things that we did was we, of course, we recorded a video on it as well. But what <laughs> I want to show you is I wanted to see. Look
1: like you've been into some weed brownies in that photo. Excuse me, I've
0: never done drugs no, in my I life, but I'm that, not about that's, to
1: start.
0: Now, is there an oversupply of townhouses? We've got this question so many times, so we went out to see whether that was actually the case. Now, one of the things that people often ask. Is is it going to be difficult to sell a townhouse? Now, when you when I thought about this, I thought, okay, what would be some evidence that it ta- that what would be some evidence that it's harder to sell a townhouse? And probably the best one would be some combination of how long it takes to sell a townhouse compared to a house, and also the price as well. Are we seeing townhouse prices keeping up with uh, with the likes of houses? And what do we see here? Well, townhouses don't actually take significantly longer to sell and haven't since 2002. So you can see at its height in about 2001, took 51 days to sell a house. It took 63 days, 64 days to sell a townhouse. Okay, so quite a big difference back in 2001, over 20 years ago, about almost two weeks difference. But what do we see since then? We're seeing these two lines converge together as people are more likely to buy townhouses today because they're changing their preferences, because they're relatively affordable. Even over here, 2019, there was at max a four to five day difference between how long it takes to sell a house versus a townhouse. Today, let's take a look at this, actually takes longer to sell a house compared to a townhouse. Now, what's my point? Not that hey, look, it's always going to be uh, take a shorter amount of time to sell a townhouse on average. No, no, no. But as society is changing, as our living preferences change, People are just as willing to buy a townhouse as a house. And I've actually been reading, uh, most recently, a doctoral thesis from somebody in uh, Victoria University who surveyed 450 Wellingtonians to talk about their changing preferences. Now, this was Christchurch, but I've also run the numbers for Auckland as well. Hey, same thing after 2002, very little difference between them. Yep. Takes a couple of extra days to sell a townhouse in Auckland, but no significant difference. On top of that, let's take a look at changing prices over time. So this is uh, the change in townhouse sales prices compared to houses. You know what? Not a lot of difference. Not a lot of difference at all. So nothing here telling me that it's actually harder to sell a townhouse or a house. Some people will, will say it on Facebook groups and things,
1: but I want to see their data before I start to believe them. Andrew, let's come to you, buddy. I've been t- typing away frantically as many as I possibly could. Um, Brian, I'm just going to answer yours. Brian Henderson said, Hi, we paid for a deposit um, to get a new-built townhouse. Thank you, Opus. Um, but it was back in April before gym shortages and triple CFA changes. Should we be worried about getting approved for the rest of the mortgage amount? Um, which is a common question. And, and because there have been delays over the last 18 months because of this thing called COVID, that we're finally through the tail end of it. Um, people are being a bit more conscious about getting their loans approved. What I'd say, Brian, is if you're not all use, already using a mortgage broker, do that now. Go and engage with a mortgage broker and talk to them about getting your approval done. If you're within 12 months of the build complete, there are banking options available for you. And actually, there are, ba- uh, there is one bank which will do a 24-month approval. Uh, and there are other tricks, like being able to order your loan documents in advance so your loan is actually locked in. So, um, preparation is probably the answer to that question, Brian.
0: You know what's hilarious? I've just seen in the chat as well, Andrew, that Jade has said, make sure you pre-order your book if not attending a a tour spot in capital letters before 15th of November, pre-launch special. Can I just point out that Jade is not a staff member and I really appreciate that she's gone ahead or he's gone ahead and done that. What's happened? Uh, it does. Now, Jade here said make sure you pre order your book. Jade's, uh, she, she, thank you, Jade. Yeah. Jade's, uh, I just want to point out, like, Jade's on Subway, just a fan, and I really appreciate that. Oh, thank which
1: you. Jade is it? Oh, look, mate, that's a question. All right, well, that was a question. <laughs> yeah. How is that not a question? Okay, I've got one for you. You show your List,
0: colours today. Listening,
1: listening to the core logic. <laughs> looking to the core, listening to the core. This is for you, are you listening? Listening to the CoreLogic boys, they reckon from data that, that we have reached or started to reach the end of property doubling every 7 to 10 years. Rough growth of 6% will be looking more like 4% going forward. Thoughts on that, Ed?
0: Oh, definitely. Look, it's not going to double at 7 to 10 years. So that's one of the big things we talk about quite frequently. Uh, we work on the basis pretty much... Sorry, I just had had muted myself before because I was chewing on ice and screaming around. Uh, Producer David just gave me a look, which was very correct. So um, absolutely. So I do think that we are going to see a slowing compared to what we have seen in the past. So they talked about 6% going to 4%. Yeah, not too bad. Often we talk about, say, a 7 or an 8% in Auckland going down to 6%. We often talk about a 6 to 7% going down to about a 5%. And I'll tell you how we typically make that up. But just before I do that... In the, you're talking about core logic, saying seven to ten years. Prices have doubled in the past, so we expect that to slow. Our basic assumption for all of New Zealand, excluding Auckland, is property doubling in price every fifteen years. And in fact, when we had Tony Alexander, uh, another economist, on our podcast not too long ago, we talked in quite a lot of detail about this. And we were talking about five percent everywhere except Auckland, six percent at Auckland. He said. That lines up with what I've been saying, and for example, the 5% everywhere else like Christchurch, Wellington, we kind of say inflation of 2% a year, yep, that'll go into house prices. Household incomes on average going up by 4% to 4.2% per year, so increasing incomes, yep, that allows house prices to go up as well because we can all borrow more. But then on top of that, perhaps another 1% for population growth, depending on where you are in the country. So certainly I don't disagree with the core logic, guys or the Infometric guys, and we've actually got a great YouTube video as well talking about is it the end of capital growth? And we talk about what might be realistic. Look, we're pretty comfortable with the working assumption of roughly 5% uh, for everywhere except Auckland, uh, except Auckland, 6% inside Auckland. But I'd recommend have a wee look at that Tony Alexander podcast that we recorded and also that uh, YouTube video is at the end of capital growth. I would just say as well that 4% is still astronomical because bear in mind that if you are buying a $600,000 house and it goes up by 4% a year. We're still talking about $24,000 in the first year on an asset that you are borrowing all of the money off. So to me, property still stacks up, would still stack up at 3% a year. We're going to come to your next question, Andrew. Joe's
1: asked the question... Oh, sorry, and I just do just want to add there. Remember, when you're doing your own numbers, I mean, we will... If you're working with someone like us um, or if you're using one of our tools, we'll tell you what we recommend you use as a baseline assumption... But everything's unlocked. Everything's in your control. If you're not comfortable using a 5% capital growth rate as a long-term growth rate in somewhere like Christchurch, change it. Change it to 4%. See what the numbers look like on that. Or change it to 35 That's why it's unlocked, so you've got any ability to change it if you think you've got a better idea than us.
0: Most things are unlocked, but not everything's unlocked. Not everything's Mainly unlocked. Mainly because I don't want people to steal my formulas because in the background... Um, hidden away is about 100 lines of formulas that calculate things like tax. So that's the reason why I lock it down because, um, A, I don't want people messing with my formulas and breaking it and then saying, Ed, why doesn't it work? But also, I also don't want some people stealing my formulas either. (laughs) My formulas.
1: Um, Tony, Tony asks, um, I've just turned 50. Happy birthday. Um, am I better in investing in capital growth rather than yield? Uh, it will be my first investment property. So um, Tony, generally speaking, uh, without knowing your, your situation, the answer to that is yes, growth is what's going to make you more wealthy, particularly if this is a 15, 20 year investment.
0: Nikki's asked, will you give a sneak preview of the book in uh, New Plymouth next Tuesday? Hey Nikki. first of all, Great to see you. I know you're the, I think you're the president of the Taranaki Property Investors Association. And for anybody else tuning in from New Plymouth, we are coming to the Taranaki Property Investors uh, Association on Tuesday next week, which is going to be a lot of fun. So hopefully you can come along to that because we will have a really great time. Um, But yes, we will give you a wee sneak preview of that book. And I don't actually, have we decided on a topic for that, the Edge?
1: Amazing. This is how we've decided on a topic. We'll get through Monday's uh, podcast, and it's your birthday, so we're going out for dinner afterwards. The next morning, you'll turn up to the office grumpy. Then you'll decide on a a topic. I'll give you another suggestion. You'll say you're doing it your way, and then you'll punch away on the aeroplane, like swearing under your breath at yourself, and then we'll turn up and we'll present. Yeah, and, and it'll it will be excellent. Yeah, it'll, it'll be a great time. If um, uh, Fee Sim said, um, "Can you counter uh, counter effect low yield and high growth areas by short term renting?" Um, so so that's like if you've got a house in Ponsonby, can you get a higher yield by doing something like an Airbnb? And someone asked an opinion of Airbnb. Look, they have their place. We've done lots of uh, podcasts on this that you can search on our uh, on our library on our website. Generally, no. Um, or or you can to a certain extent, but I'd just buy right in the first place. Um, There are so many other factors with Airbnb that are outside of your control, like local councils changing things around. Um, Is there a section on the book on this as well, Ed? What's that? Oh, I thought you were looking for it. Um, I think that uh, um, Airbnb definitely has its place, but it's not something that I would probably um, hedge all my bets on. No, we
0: don't talk a lot about uh, Airbnb within the book. It's not one of the core strategies. But there was a great question from, and I hope I pronounce it right, if not I apologise, Ramanan, uh, which was what reasons or scenarios would someone running the race buy a high yielding property instead of a growth property? And that is a really good question because there are some examples, and so I've just searched up the book, and I'll get this across your screens, about the concept of a wealth wheel. Now we've used really simple numbers here, even though at today's interest rates, it wouldn't work out exactly like this, but in a more normal interest rate environment, it would. So if, you, and it's this concept of building a wealth wheel. Now let's say, and again, I'm using simple numbers here, that your gross property costs you $100 a week, and that's because it's negatively cared, and maybe you've got two of them. So that's costing you $200 a week. Again, simple numbers. Maybe you go and buy a higher yield property, and maybe that earns you $200 a week. So this is where you could use the yield property to pay for the two growth properties in what we call a wealth wheel. So if we come back to that uh, scenario or case study I shared of Tanya earlier on in question time, Her fourth property was a high-yielding apartment bought for 535k in 2017 in Wellington, and that was specifically for this situation where she was using the higher-yield property to pay the top-ups for the negatively geared growth properties. So that is one of the situations where that would be totally appropriate. So thank you for that question. It's a very, very good one. Uh, what are you tapping away to at the moment, Andrew? Uh, um, that you can answer life for everyone. At
1: what point? Uh, at, po- at what point would you look at getting an external property manager, e.g., one house versus five houses? As soon as you got your first. As soon as you have your first investment, is my answer to that. Um, Sinead said, "Hey guys, hypothetically speaking, if income is good, but came, I came up short on deposit for an investment property once the property is ready to complete. Say there was a drop in the price or something like that." Are there options to bridge that gap to make up the 20%? So um, there are always uh, options like non-bank lenders, which you could investigate. I think we did a podcast on this recently. One option that I've um, done in the past is I've involved other people. So what might happen is I might say, right, I need a $200,000 investment for a million-dollar property in in Auckland, for example, but I've only got $100,000 to put towards that. Great. Rope in a good friend like Ed, Get another hundred thousand out of him, and then share in the profit. Good luck, and share in the deposit. Um, so that's I think doing things collectively is going to become a lot more normal. Uh, yes, you have to share in the profit, but because you're sharing in the risk as well, I think that's a great way of doing something like that. Or go and ask mum and dad if if mum and dad have got some money to lend you.
0: Now, Anonymous attendee asked a really good question. I'll answer it, but then I also want your opinion on this, Andrew, as well. And it's a good question. I want to answer it because a lot of people ask this. Are the properties that we recommend here at Opus Partners more expensive than the open market since we're getting paid a fee from the developer? Very common question, don't mind answering it all. The answer is no, and I'll tell you the reason why. Firstly, there are a lot of properties that we recommend to investors that are exclusive to Opus. They're not released on the open market, aren't advertised anywhere because they are there for the investors that come through our service. And the reason a developer might often do that is because we work with up to a thousand different investors uh, across the country every single year, we've got investors who are keen to invest, ready to invest, ready to go. The second thing that you've got to remember is that every single property sold in New Zealand has a transaction fee attached to it. Either you're going to pay a real estate agent to move that property on, or the developer might have to market that property themselves. They might have to pay uh, commission to one of their sales team if they've got a sales team there. So every single property transaction in New Zealand has some sort of fee associated with it. And so it's the same as everywhere else. What else... Any other thoughts
1: specifically on that one, Andrew? Look, I I honestly think that using a service like us is like using a mortgage broker. So if you you can absolutely go to a bank yourself. You can absolutely get what you ask for from the bank. But often we don't know what to ask for when we go to the bank, and that's why some people end up with a different mortgage structure than they want. Now, the bank pays a mortgage broker for introducing that business. It's exactly the same when we're doing it with a developer. Um, And the bank if you go to them directly, they've still got costs as well. They've got staff, they've got offices, they've got company cars, they've got holiday pay, they've got all those same costs as well. The great thing about a mortgage broker as using that as a comparison, is the bank only pays that mortgage broker if you actually do something. So it's actually a better business model, in my opinion. That's what we offer as well. Um, you can go to a developer, absolutely, but you're n- you're very unlikely to be able to do the same due diligence on a developer that we're going to do. You're, I believe that we get a better uh, discount because when we go, or when I go, I, I represent... 50 uh, units in the development, for example. So therefore... Um, when you go, you're not getting that same leverage or purchasing power if you're representing yourself. Neither right or wrong. It's completely up to you. We don't really mind, which is why we give away all this information for free. Someone asked about Williams Corporation before. We've done a review on the, of them on our website. We've done a review of Bro- Brooksfield. We've done a review of Deval Group that came out the other day. Uh, signature Homes, Edifice.
0: Yep. We've got a whole heap of them on you there. You can
1: take that information and you can do, go and do it yourself if you're so inclined. But also... Don't be a DIYer that builds a wonky deck.
0: So um, one other question that came from Anonymous attendee, another Anonymous attendee. said, can you share Ed's story uh, as, on a case study Sunday since he started his uh, investment journey? Look, we probably should do that. I can't believe we haven't done that. Um, we will do that at some point. But one of the things that I do want to say is that at the book launch, and we've been preparing our speeches for these book launches for probably about the last six months, because we wanted to make this book launch really good. I talk about some of the stuff that I've always been a wee bit embarrassed to talk about on the podcast, which is where, when I was younger, got it all bloody wrong, um, and was up to my eyeballs in debt, and eventually paid it all off. And so if you come along on the book tour, I'll talk about how probably about half my a- my a- I had enough credit card debt to take up about half my after- after-tax income when I was about 24. And talk about getting out of that. Because I tell you what, I'm, I'm an economist, I'm meant to be good with money, and when I was 24, I certainly wasn't. So you're going to be hearing all about that at the book tour launch. Maybe we'll do a case study Sunday on that afterwards. Um, because moving from that to owning a business and uh, owning a few investment properties, hey, it's pretty cool to come so far. It's been and, quite a journey. Oh, in, a, in a short space of time yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the next one.
1: Um, so um, Shun said... I feel like capital growth is gambling. Is this the case with Nubis? Well, I think we'll just tackle the one about capital growth as gambling. Look, (laughs) um, it's really interesting. So I've been an investor for so long and I've been to every investment seminar and I I belong to lots of investment chat groups and everyone always talks about cash flow being the thing that you need to target. I've done that. It doesn't make you rich. Chasing capital growth is absolutely what does. Now, everyone always says... I can't believe a property that's a million dollars now is going to be worth two million dollars in 15, 20 years' time. People just struggle with that concept. But I tell you this if you've been in the property market for 20 years, I guarantee that million dollar house that you own today, when you bought it for $500,000, if someone said it would be worth a million dollars, you'd think they were off their head. But looking forward, it's always that more challenging uh, thing to consider. There will always be inflation. There will always be a cost of building a property, and there will always be inflation on land. So there will always always be capital growth of some amount. Again, use an amount that you're comfortable with if you're not comfortable with ours. But right, look, I'm not great with predicting uh, the future, Ed's probably a little bit better because he's more of a nerd than me and we'll go and dig it out. Tony Alexander's probably one of the best and he's comfortable with the numbers that we use so I'm comfortable with those. Great. Hey, I'm going to, we've probably got time for
0: two more more questions. questions. I'm going to answer Justin's question and then I'm going to give you one more. So Justin's asked, and this is more about us again here at Opus, do you do due diligence on the financial position of the developers slash builders you recommend slash work with? The answer is absolutely. So we go through a very significant um, fact-finding exercise with the developers. Now, one thing that investors often ask is, well, can you just share the due diligence that you've done on the specific developer that I want to work with? Now, what because we go into so much detail asking them about who their funder is, what's their financial position, are your building suppliers locked in, Is your labour supply locked in? How locked in is it? How far have you gone through your building consent process? And a whole heap of other questions. Because of that, we have to sign confidentiality agreements with the developers saying, hey, look, if you tell us all about your commercial enterprise, we're not going to tell the other 96 developers we work with all about what's going on with you. So we can't share the exact details of the due diligence that we've done, But I can tell you about the process that we've been through and in fact in a not not too uh, long ago webinar I think we actually pulled up one of the spreadsheets that we use where we go through a traffic light system and we rate the developers on a whole heap of other things. On top of that we search through the top three three pages of Google looking for anything, not just on the company but also on each of the directors we check whether at least one of the directors is domiciled in New Zealand so they can't just run away or pull their money back overseas if times get tough, again I talked about labour supply building material supply and financing as well, those are some of the main ones, as well as checking legal databases, uh, looking for uh, at the insolvency register really doing the due diligence now let me just be clear, Um, I'm a numbers guy, I don't do that personally Andrew's not a detail guy (laughs) he doesn't do that personally, we have Vanessa Garrett, who is our compliance manager, who does all of that, is extraordinarily detailed and uh, I have a lot of faith in, so I know that we do that due diligence really well
1: yep what's yep. your question I thought you said I'm, and I'm going to ask you another question oh, I thought you were going to get another oh, no, question no 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 I, I thought you'd chosen a doozy or something for the end one. So. Oh, okay 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 let me, let me find um, out well, And while you're doing that someone said do non-bank lenders charge higher interest rates yes is the answer
0: there was a really good question I'm just trying to find it but I remember what it was this person ah here it is it's Carlo Carlo said I've got a 200k mortgage on my home that's worth 600k personal home I've got a 650K investment property that's got a 500K uh, mortgage interest only. What's my next move?
1: Um, If you're with one bank, then you need to split bank and that will free up usable equity in your owner-occupied. So at the moment, if you're with one bank and they're cross-secured, your challenge is that... Uh, because of the LVR uh, LVR restrictions, your usable equity for your own house is being sucked up from your rental property. So if you pick that property up and you move it under the dollar for dollar refinancing rule, you're going to free up usable equity in your house. That'll allow you to buy the next one. Talk to Catalyst Financial about that. Um, They've got a service called Investment Ready, which will help you get into a position where you are buying your next rental property.
0: The great thing as well I'll just let you guys know before we wrap up Um, so far on this webinar I think 71 books have already gone out the door and on top of that an extra 150 tickets for those events around the country so so, um, about 220, 230 books um, gone so really appreciate you guys being here thank you so much for your support and buying that book tell your friends about it as well wealthplanbook.com and we're going to go out and tell the world all about it hey thanks so much for being with us we're going to be back again next month and of course all of you guys in Taranaki. We are going to see you on Tuesday at 7pm at the, I think it's the copthorn but I probably got it wrong. Sorry about that. (laughs) See you guys later. Bye now. (laughs)